Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I find things out and I tell you about them. I hope that they're either new and interesting to you or you are entertained by me finding out about these things for the first time. The findings we have for this week are Watertown. What is its true name? And what is its form of government? And what are the forms of municipal government available in Massachusetts? And then, uh, how do speakers actually move the air? And then we have a finding about Poirot and Agatha Christie. And finally, some updates. An update, another update about the delay finding from two episodes ago. Uh, an update about Nassim Taleb, who I mentioned last episode. And finally, um, some micro findings about companies you'd think would be dead, but exist now in some weird zombified form. All right, on to the findings. <laughs> There is a neighboring town called Watertown, or at least that was what I thought. In fact, it is neither a town, nor is its official name Watertown. The official, t- the official name of Watertown, Massachusetts is, get ready, it's long, the official name is the city known as the town of Watertown. Once again, the city known as the town of Watertown. This was in the news lately because they, the city officials have voted to change the name because that name is confusing. The reason it has that name is because back when it was founded in 1630, it was in fact a town. And then in 1980, it became a city, but it still wanted to hold on to the Watertown name. So they ended up with the name, the city known as the town of Watertown. What this made me think about is, what is the difference between a city and a town? Well, according to the 89th Amendment to the Massachusetts State Constitution, which is classically listed as Amendment LXXXIX, a city and town are two forms of municipal government. The city is available to municipalities with at least 12,000 people. So that's probably the form of government you're most familiar with. Uh, it either is either has a mayor and a council, um, like in Chicago, for example, 
or it has uh, a council and uh, no no strong mayor. Usually they just call the the councillor who got the most votes the mayor, but they usually don't have any special powers and a city manager. Maybe another day I will talk about what I found out about how the various problems with the the councillor manager system, which we have in Cambridge, but I'm going to leave that alone for now. But that's what you could do if you have 12,000 people. Uh, if you don't have that many people, you could be a town. And there are two forms of town. If you have uh, at least 6,000 people, you could have this form of uh, town government called the Representative Town Meeting Form. In this, uh, town meeting members vote on what the city should do, what the laws are, that kind of thing. This sounds, uh, at first glance, like basically like the councillor system that cities have. But, you know, councillors, there's usually under 10 councillors for a city, maybe 12. Uh, you could have a lot of representatives uh, for your town meeting. Uh, Framingham, for example, a, a town in Massachusetts, has 216 town meeting members. So that's quite a bit of representation. And officially, there is one town meeting a year where they vote on things. And then there's a provision for, you know, extra meetings for special occasions uh, in case you can't get all the governing in in one meeting. And I, I get the impression that special things come up a lot. But if you don't have 6,000 people, in fact, uh, I was going to say if you don't have 6,000 people, you can do this, but... If you have under 6,000 people, you must have the other form of town government, which is called the open town meeting format, or open town meeting form of government. This is really interesting in that it's some very direct democracy. In the open town meeting, every voter in town acts as the legislature. So at that one official meeting a year, they show up and they, they vote on all the issues and they make all the decisions which I think is pretty cool. Uh, I'd like to see more direct democracy, uh, as unmanageable as it can be. Um, but of course, uh, nothing, nothing is uh, as pure as it sounds, because uh, for practical reasons, somebody has to pick the things that they vote on. Uh, and those are the selectmen. I've heard of selectmen before, but in my ignorance, I thought it was just kind of a, a rural name for counselor. But the selectmen are the people, and I assume women are allowed to be selectmen. Uh, they decide, okay, these are the issues uh, we'll vote on. These these are the laws we'll you know uh, ratify or or vote down, etc. And, of course, those people are probably very powerful, much in the same way and in the U.S. Senate uh, or the U.S. Uh, 
House of Representatives, the, the people that just quietly decide this isn't going to be voted on are extremely powerful. But it's still, still far more direct than any other form of municipal government around here. But back to the city known as the town of Watertown. Um, so they recently voted 10-4. Their council voted in favor of changing the name. So what did they change it to? Well, they changed it to the city of Watertown. That's definitely easier to say, and it's shorter. And it is a little less confusing. But it's a little confusing, because it has city and town in it. Um, a friend of mine quipped that they should have... Actually, actually more than one person. Kat also made this comment, that they should have called it Water City. And, yeah, that would be the clearest thing to name it. But, of course... If you call it Water City, it's just going to make you think it's like a place with a bunch of water slides and lazy rivers and things like that. So I could kind of understand why they called it the city of Watertown instead of just Water City. I made a speaker today, and as a result... I know a little bit more about how speakers work, specifically how the actual vibrations are made by the speaker. As you might know, speakers work by creating changes in the air pressure levels, and ears detect changes to the air pressure level uh, and judge them as below or average, below or above the average air pressure level and that's how we perceive sound. Speakers can create these changes in air pressure level um, but the thing I didn't really think about too much is how do they do that? They move the speaker cones around, we know that, um, but the way they work is there is a permanent fixed magnet in them Right, and that creates a magnetic field. And then the way they create variation is by having uh, an electrical current go through a coil that is also in the speaker. So electrical current going through the coil creates another magnetic field. And depending on the voltage, it will either... Uh, move the coil towards the magnet or away from the magnet. So, you know, opposite charges will attract, like charges repel, and by varying this charge, you, uh, you determine how the coil will move. And so, that's how you create the vibrations. And uh, if you have a speaker cone or anything else that will carry that vibration, uh, it'll be all the more louder. So in my case, uh, in this workshop that was hosted by the Recurse Center, we were supposed to make a fabric speaker um, out of fabric with a, with a metal coil sewn into it. Uh, fortunately, my sewing's not great, so 
uh, after I got a coil made, it was just, uh, after I got a coil sewed into the fabric, it was just too sparse. It wasn't, the coil wasn't packed tightly enough and I just did not have it in me to, uh, to do it again. So Samantha Goldstein, who was running the workshop, uh, pointed out that, uh, an alternative, which is you could actually just wind wire directly around the, the magnet. Uh, the closest thing I had to wire, or the, the closest, the form of wire that I had was pipe cleaners. So I stripped off the, the fuzzy, the fuzzy parts off the ends of the pipe cleaners, wrapped it around the coil, and then connected the amp to it, and then the other part, uh, the other part of the amp was connected through a headphone jack to a computer, and and it actually worked, um, which is pretty fantastic. So, the thing I don't know is how exactly does the amp work. Uh, that's a little bit of a of a black box, or a. Uh, an opened uh, circuit board that I don't know how to read but at least I know how the vibrating works and hopefully so do you Anderson and I have been reading Sherlock Holmes at bedtime for a while I don't think we'll run out anytime soon although we're most of the way through the second volume of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, there's still the first volume. But I have to pass by a collection of uh, Hercule Poirot stories by Agatha Christie, so I picked it up to look at it and see if there was anything we could use. So far, no, but I've, I've only, I'm only partway through one story, I vaguely remember the shape of Poirot's stories as a result of watching the PBS series. Kat and I used to put it on to relax in the evenings and we'd often uh, forget what the actual plot was or what the mystery was to be solved, but we really liked the atmosphere and, and the characterization. On closer examination, Poirot resembles Sherlock Holmes a great deal. He even has a Watson inspector jab, and he also keeps things to himself. He doesn't really tell people what he's thinking until he has everything fully formed and is ready to reveal everything. Uh, very convenient uh, for, for fiction because it'll, it'll keep you reading all the way to the end. Despite what I think of as, Poir uh, despite what I think of Poirot as having, what I call a comforting PBS feel, this this first story I'm reading involves uh, somebody who allegedly died of a cocaine overdose. So Sherlock Holmes is a cocaine user, or I think was one and then quit or something like that. But there is one of his stories where he does inject cocaine. Uh, and if you're reading that to a kid, I think, I'll, I'll have to examine it closely, I think you could actually skip that part and the rest of the story will still make sense. If it's part of the plot, it's a lot harder. So this one story can't be used. 
unless I want to explain cocaine, which, you know, if I were a truly brave parent, uh, I'd, I'd figure out how to do it, but uh, I don't really have the energy for that. So we're just not going to read that. But back to the similarity with Sherlock Holmes. Agatha Christie started writing these stories in the mid-1920s. I think the last Sherlock Holmes stories were written around the turn of the century, like the mid-1890s. So Agatha Christie worked about 20 or 30 years later than Arthur Conan Doyle. But despite all these similarities, um, I think Poirot is generally considered to stand on his own. In fact, even though in the first few paragraphs of the this first story I read, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, I thought, oh, this is, this is very closely patterned after Sherlock Holmes. I've never actually heard anyone mention Sherlock Holmes being, or uh, sorry, other way around. I never heard anyone mention Poirot being a Sherlock Holmes clone. In fact, Poirot and Agatha's, Agatha Christie's work in general have vastly eclipsed Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I didn't know this, but probably everyone else does because the, the back of the book says that Agatha Christie is the most widely published author of all time, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. Her books have sold more than a billion copies in English and another billion in a hundred foreign languages. So this is probably one of those findings that everybody else knows about, except me. I have even more updates about the finding about delay and the vibraphone. Friends of the show, Amin and Dan, uh, much like Hugh the previous week, uh, let me know that they also could hear the delay in the vibraphone when it was offset by only 0.01 seconds. So maybe that finding really is, I, I'm the only one who can't hear that. Uh, my speculation is that I've come to think of the vibraphone as always having delay because I, I listened to that Sound of the Far Future piece so many times uh, in which um, left and right channels are offset slightly and are slightly different um, and it's like always playing the vibraphone. Uh, another update, in the last episode in the finding about the unsuitability of Bitcoin as a currency, I talked about the author of that paper and I mentioned briefly his name was Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and I saw at the top of the paper that he was associated with NYU. So I said something like, I think he goes to NYU. Uh, upon further Wikipedia reading, uh, he's actually a distinguished professor of risk engineering at NYU. So technically he does go there. He's also a fairly well-known expert on uncertainty and probability. And a glance at his Wikipedia page uh, reveals that 
He's a bit of a, a spicy dude who gets into some drag-down, knockout arguments with Nobel laureates and things like that. I requested one of his books. Should be interesting. Finally, John Harris wrote in and let me know that Real Player, if you're old enough to remember that, Real Player still exists. And I took a look at the Real Media Company, and it seems like they're they're no longer... Um, you know, they, if you remember, they, they got pretty, uh, pretty well obsoleted by MP3s, or at least their real media format did. Um, so it looks like they, they had enough money or enough of a name to uh, stay funded, or maybe they had enough savings. But, you know, ignore all that. The point is that company still exists, and... They seem to say that they are good at computer vision and AI things. It kind of reminds me of a couple other uh, companies that seem to have survived mostly in name. If you remember WordPerfect, the uh, I had uh, thanks to some some Wears connections, <laughs> I had WordPerfect. Uh, 5.1 for DOS and I think I also had WordPerfect for Windows 3.1 it was a word processing program that was excellent for its time but WordPerfect still exists you could still buy WordPerfect it it looks like it doesn't have any distinguishing features but it is called WordPerfect and you could still buy it the other thing um, this reminds me of is the fact that Atari existed for a while. Atari existed as, as basically just a name. I think they were owned by the British video game company Infogrames, which itself is a very odd name, but they just put the Atari brand on various things. They didn't really do anything Atari-like or you know, have a console or anything like that. <laughs> And that is it for this episode's findings. If you have anything you want to share, any findings you want to correct or comment upon, uh, email me at smallfindings at fastmail.com. There was a bird there that has thrown me off my episode closing game. But I'm going to recover here to say thanks for listening. See you next time. Oh, my God.